and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by NAF Five Star for the best performance worldwide. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope you're all managing to get a bit of time to enjoy your horses this autumn. I had a jumping lesson last week, which was a great way to blow away any winter blues. And uh, I hope you're all not getting too wet and cold and able to uh, have some fun. Our interview this week is with the dressage legend Carl Hester. He talks about what's happening on his yard while Charlotte Dujardin is pregnant, their upcoming Grand Prix horses and his own plans for the future. People say to you, you know, well, are you going to ride in Paris? And I'm like, well, yes, I would love to ride in Paris, but it's not a given. You know, there are lots of people fighting for those three slots. I'll then be talking to our news team about the recent World Horse Welfare Conference and calls for a review of fireworks legislation. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson will talk about why horses become strong and the best way to deal with riding and training a strong horse. So what do we mean by a strong horse? I would say the horse has a deficit to slowing and stopping from rain pressure. And I would also say that the horse is unable to maintain self-carriage, i.e. when the horse is being ridden, the horse starts to accelerate without being cued from the rider. So I'm sure you can't wait to hear from Carl. Pick up the reins and let's get started. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm thrilled to welcome none other than Carl Hester onto the Horse and Hound podcast this week as our guest. Carl needs very little introduction. He is a true master of our sport and has done so much for dressage in Britain over the years. He was, of course, the man behind the mighty combination of Charlotte Dujardin and Vallegro, and he is also a multi-medalist and six-time Olympian in his own right. Carl, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're rather tired after uh, a rather long trip back from Australia. Is that right? Yes, yes. I've just been doing a masterclass over there this weekend and um, I thought it might be a good idea to try something different. So I got on the plane last uh, Wednesday, whipped into Australia, did my uh, masterclass on Saturday and hopped on the plane on Sunday. And wow. uh, I thought... <laughs> I thought that might be a clever idea and get my body back into uh, UK time before I had a chance to realise I was in (laughs) Australia. But I have to say, standing up uh, for six hours to do a masterclass on Saturday was not easy. I was pretty much on my knees. So thanks to um, Coca-Cola, I got through the day. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, I mean kudos to you for uh, for making it and for getting through that busy weekend um of course so many top riders like you do spend quite a lot of time teaching during the winter season I can't really call it the off season of course dressage never stops but the quieter times of year is there something you enjoy I know it's something you do quite a lot of nowadays yeah I mean you know teaching is my passion and you know it will become you know my way my way of life really I, I suppose when I stop riding so definitely I mean I've always enjoyed teaching and, and as you said the winter months are ideal to uh, get more in this time of year of course is a great time of year for my traveling for the uh, master classes abroad so that was my third one in Australia in the last sort of six weeks and I've got Florida coming up in three weeks so um, you know, it's like I've always said, it's a, it's a great way of earning your living to be able to travel around the world and, and talk about what you do and, 
you know, teach people. And of course, a lot of these countries, I mean, like particularly Australia this weekend, you know, we had 2,000 people come for the masterclass. Wow. And that's, you know, because they are basically starved um, of having people go down there. So they love it if somebody makes the effort to go and, and it's well worth it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, do you think it's a, a sort of a skill that all professional riders should be developing, that ability to teach and talk about what they do, not just sort of in a, on a one-on-one basis with their own clients, but in more of a sort of a clinic or a masterclass type of environment? Oh, for sure. I think, you know, definitely if, if you're thinking of saving for the future, I mean, you know, you have to be able to do these things to actually, you know, earn some money to put aside. And And as we know, like running the yard and just your day-to-day teaching is very difficult to put money aside with the with the cost of everything nowadays. Yeah. So, you know, these are definitely a, a draw. People love them. And I definitely, I mean, I've thought about, you know, myself talking to other people, to TV, you know, and, and people that, you know, write about it. You know, like this is a chance that we educate people how to do a masterclass because, I mean, it does need a certain amount of planning and it does need a certain personality. And you need an order, of course, to, to make these things, um, you know, simple for people to understand. So I, I definitely recommend it. And it's difficult because, okay, nowadays everyone knows me as somebody who doesn't shut up much. But, you know, <laughs> in the early days, I was very shy myself and found these things very daunting. And I still do until I actually stand up and, and get going like a lot of people. It's a bit like being nervous when you're going to a competition. You mm. know, once you get on the horse, it all goes away. And it's the same with the masterclasses. I find them daunting until I stand up and get cracking. But it's something I've learned over the years to take on and do. And, and I would wish that more people would be able to do that of course it's hard to imagine someone as experienced as yourself still feeling nervous but I think you know that should be encouraging to other people to know that even even Carl Hester does feel nervous but once he gets going he feels better about it (laughs) yeah it's it's I think you know like you know when you are delivering you know something like a masterclass you are very aware of the responsibility that you have to you know promote dressage the right way make sure everybody understands what you want uh, make sure that you you know when you just go into another country um and you do one of these things you don't want to leave people struggling with that with the instruction you give them you know you're supposed Mm. to just be enhancing what they do already rather than you know giving them a load of exercises they don't understand so there is definitely a a balance to to how you do it and I think that's more sort of how I feel about it I just want to make sure that everybody's left being able to carry on as they were before but maybe with a few more extra exercises that work for them and understanding what everybody's progression is you know some people you know we're talking you know just a a millimeter and that's enough for them in stages to improve and some people need a big improvement yeah absolutely and i guess that's the kind of skill and knowledge that comes with giving these um these talks and these clinics and these masterclasses over the years so let's just wind back a little bit and talk about the last sort of 12 months of course the year before that was a whirlwind with the uh the tokyo olympics the europeans um of course in terms of your own championship goals in 2022 it was a little disappointing for you as you weren't able to campaign your lovely olympic course on vogue for the world dressage championships in august so how is vogue now what's the current situation yeah, no, he's good. He's really good. I mean, you know, once that decision was made back in May and he needed that six weeks uh, then. So, 
realising obviously that that would not bring him back in time for the World Games this year, uh, I decided to give him the extra time off. So he's he stayed out um, and he's been out of work and he's just coming back into work now because I look at his future as being, you know, he's not an indoor championship horse, so there will be no point campaigning him for World Cup. So I just want him to have like a winter of hacking and stretching and just some mm. gentle exercise because I won't need him uh, to come back into competition until next April. So um, I'm going to take that time to bring him back. And we are working very much on the other horses that we've got coming up. So it is a busy time. And, and as we all know, you know, Charlotte is now pregnant. Of um, course. She's beginning to get heavily, more heavily <laughs> pregnant. So there is no sitting trot anymore. Oh, and, gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got off the flight yesterday from Australia and, you know, my first job as soon as I came through the door was to go and get back on a few horses. So I did that yesterday. <laughs> and then this morning I've had her, you know, shouting at me to get on and do this and get on that one and on this one. And, uh, yeah, no, the the future for my riding is looking pretty bleak <laughs> because I've got an awful lot to do at the moment. So she will obviously wind down. She's still, she's still riding. But, right, um, okay. Yeah, but not obviously to the point she was and I want to get my last masterclass out of the way as I said which will be in Florida in three weeks yeah uh, get back home and then really I'll use January February March when she isn't riding to really get stuck into the new horses but you know we have some very exciting horses about to start their Grand Prix career next spring very looking forward to that and very much going to be a part of that with Charlotte so we're, we're looking at sort of having maybe about five Grand Prix horses ready um, for the next Olympic Games. So they'll need to start next year really uh, getting ready for that sort of level. So, yeah, the next few months I'm going to be busy, but I'm really enjoying riding them. <laughs> Good. Just tell us a bit about those those five horses that we should be looking out for at Grand Prix, you know, next year and obviously between now and, and the Olympics. Well, we have Horty and San Floriano. So she was um, very prominent at the national championships in September. She yes. is a super talented horse, of course, related to um, Delicato. And uh, she has the same sort of talent as he has and the same brilliant work ethic. So she'll hopefully start her Grand Prix career alive and kicking, who uh, was the small black mare that won the pre-St. George at the national championships. Uh, I'm riding her at the moment and I get on with her very well. So I'm hoping she'll start maybe around March with her first Grand Prix. Wonderful. And we've of course still got Imitet, we've got Vogue, um, and I'm riding another Grand Prix horse at the moment for someone else, so we'll see how that turns out. And the brilliant Kismet, of course, she is quite young, Kismet, but she has she is like riding the most wonderful sofa in the world. I absolutely adore <laughs> her, and uh, you know she's a winner through and through. And her talent, the Grand Prix, is just exceptional. So she's very exciting. So. We have, you know, that, that sort of group and it's a very exciting time for them because it is that moment of truth, of course, coming up, uh, how they'll be in the ring. But it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a lot of riding for me to take on because these sort of horses, you know, don't take uh, 15 minutes. You know, these are up and coming Grand Prix horses. You have to get them really through, really soft, really forward. And they've got to learn all the movements. And also they have to gain some, some more competition experience so they can do it in the ring as well. Of course. And I wanted to ask you about, about Imhotep. 
aka Pete, who yeah. Charlotte rode in Herning this summer. Um, and you co-own him, don't you, with Coral Ingham? And you must have been yes. so proud of them um, this year and what they've achieved. And are you are you riding him at the moment? Is he one of the ones that you've been stepping into <laughs> stepping yes. into rides? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, he is. I mean, I did ride Pete, you know, until he was about seven years old, and then Charlotte took him over. But if you look at his progression um, this year. You know, he in in January this year, he literally could do two one-time changes, and that was it. You know, I and mean, he's a very, for those people that don't know him, he's a very forward-going, hot type of horse. You know, he's incredibly intelligent, um, and he learned everything really between January or or finished off his learning for the Grand Prix between January and uh, May when he did his first international. Mm. And um, you know, he was a very rapid progression, but. The thing is, I did say to Charlotte this year, when we started with him, it would be important that it was more about his training and he would just do a couple of shows. We didn't want him overcompeted. And his temperament is so brave that I knew he would go to the World Games and cope with all of that, which he was amazing at. So he hasn't had a, a difficult year from the point of view of his training. You know, we've just kept pushing forward slowly. And of course, he went to the World Games and was exceptional. He, he was, was. absolutely he's so exciting i mean he lives in a field he comes in in the morning like a hair you know he's like a great big hairy orange and he comes in in the morning and you know he has his couple of hours you know to have his breakfast and then you get on him and he's just up for it every day there isn't a day that goes past where that horse doesn't want to work oh that's amazing yeah. there's a lot of improving with pete as well you mm. know there's lots of things which will just come through the winter i think as he gets stronger he's doing uh, water treadmill every week now we've just started that he did have six weeks out in the field after the world games completely off we didn't touch him right um so he's just been uh, hacking but he just so difficult not to work him because he's just <laughs> desperate to work all the time and when you do take him in the school um you know he's on rocket fuel so it's been Aww. really good for me to ride him now a little bit as well. And it's more about his fitness this winter, I think. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting how you were, were talking about the fact that he had made such rapid progression um, and, you know, come on so far in such a short period of time. And obviously some horses you can push more than others um, to achieve that, that sort of level in a shorter period of time. How, how would you say you know people can tell whether they've got a horse that they can you know keep asking that little bit more of and when they should back off and and take more time well i think first of all as well you know you're talking about a horse that's being produced by somebody that already knows what they're doing so it's not a question of the blind leading the blind here you know sure. charlotte of course is very proficient and efficient at, at training these horses so they don't have to work that hard to learn the movements it's more about their fitness um which we deal with in other ways not just the the on the dressage side of it by lots of hacking and the treadmills and things like that so you know that's number one you know if you haven't done this with a horse before and this is your first horse you know you probably will need to take more time because you're mm -hmm. both learning from each other but i think you know also the intelligence and the hotness in in his case in pete's case you know, is the fact that he's, you never need to motivate him. He has self-motivation and that's why it was so easy to learn everything. You know, a lot of horses you will find laboring more at that level and that's telling you something. That's telling you that they, you know, they're not strong enough themselves. They might not mentally be ready to take it. Um, and you will feel that. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to feel when you're schooling, if your horse is tired, 
Um, and Pete never gives you that sort of feeling. You know, he never feels like he's tired. Of course, he's young, so, you know, I'm, you know, it's easy to, to, to stop the training, you know, after 20 minutes, half an hour, and just think, well, the rest of the time that he's ridden must be dedicated to fitness and not more um, arena work, as it were. Mm. So they're all different, you know, shapes and sizes, temperaments, that tells you how fast or how slow you can go. But I would never expect a horse to be at Pete's level before his age. So, yeah. um, and you know, that's why I'm going to do this winter, um, you know, very slowly and carefully with him so that he's got all this time now um, before the buttons really would get pressed next year. Wonderful. And um, and you were saying just then about horses obviously being so different to each other. And I know that um, one of the ones you've already mentioned is is different to all of your others in one area. Kismet is the, the mare who doesn't like going in the field. Is that right? We've conquered that. Have so you? We oh. have. So uh, Kismet is now, yeah, and she's taken to it. It's taken a long time. Um, ah, but, you fantastic. know, I wasn't, I, you know, I, did, I wasn't going to give up on that because I am very... You know, where if they're not going to even be relaxed in the field, you know, the only time that Kismet was really relaxed was when she was ridden. Um, she loves her work as well. You know, she's the female version mm. of Pete. Um, <laughs> and I wanted her, but I needed her to have some downtime. And we tried mm. everything for a while and it didn't work. And even, you know, with another horse and again and again and again. But in fact, what we did was, you know, made a very small pen in the field. And so she started in a very small pen and then, you know, week by week, we've stretched the pen and stretched the pen and stretched the pen until it's now half the size of a field uh, of one of my paddocks. And she's very happy like that. She obviously was just, you know, didn't like this open space, but she's now getting used to it. And um, so I'm, I'm glad to say that we've got over that and we found a way around it. Aww. And um, so she has her, re you know, it's just great because you don't want to be riding, you know, these horses all the time and schooling yeah. them all the time. There needs to be other things they can do which don't involve, um, you know, getting physically tired. So I'm happy to say that we've cracked that problem. Amazing. That is really good to hear because horses, like you say, going out and having that chance to be in the field being horses, that has always been really important to you, hasn't it? Yes, it's a big priority for me. And, you know, I come, uh, as everyone knows, it's, it's, it's a story well told. But, you know, when I came from Sark in the Channel Islands, we didn't even have a stable, let alone, you know, like... <laughs> you know, want to keep horses in. There were no stables to keep horses in. They all lived out all year round and were very healthy uh, and happy horses. So, you know, it is important. And I did want, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was really hoping that we would find a way around this so that she can have her quality time um, out to chill out, just like all, all of our other horses here. There isn't one that doesn't get that. Lovely. And of course, uh, it wasn't all about Charlotte Dujardin this year. There was another Charlotte who dominated headlines. Of course, I'm talking about Lottie Fry, our fabulous world champion with Glamourdale. You've talked before about what it means to ride on championship teams with Lottie and to see her doing so, so well, as of course you rode alongside her mother, Laura, who sadly passed away in 2012. What was it like for you watching Lottie out in Herning this summer, winning not one, but two individual gold medals? It, it was an absolutely brilliant moment for all of us. And I think, you know, I mean, Lottie actually has given you that same sort of calmness 
to watch her as I finally learned to get with Charlotte. You know, they are so good at their job. They are so good at competing, uh, these girls, that, you know, I don't feel nervous. I don't feel worried for her. I don't feel the situation will affect her. Um, you know, it totally does not overwhelm her and she's able to rise to pressure. In fact, she rides better under pressure. She loves it, just like Charlotte does. So, um, so from that point of view, I just, you know, it was so nice to be able to relax and chill out. And it was lovely to see Simon there. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to Simon, forget. Lottie's, Lottie's father. Simon, exactly, mm. Lottie's dad. And I mean, he's such a, you know, quiet, you know, in the background guy. He's just there supporting and watching. And I saw him on the podium when Lottie won, won her gold and he was just wiping away the tears. And I went over to him just to remind him of course, that he's very much, because we all talk about Lottie's mum because she was the mm. rider. Um, but of course, Simon is as proud and it was fantastic to see him there enjoying it as well. Oh, I can imagine that must have been so incredibly emotional. Would you say Lottie is a lot like her mum? Obviously, you knew Laura very, very well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Laura's work ethic was mm. very well known. I mean, she worked so hard at it. And I think it would be fair to say that, um, you know, Laura didn't have the talent that Lottie's got. I mean, Laura had to work very hard for everything and every horse she trained. She was constantly, all of her life, working on her seat and her position and trying to better that. And um, Lottie has it by nature, by the looks of it. Mm. Uh, you know, all Lottie needed to do was become stronger as a, as a rider, it, physically. And uh, you know, mentally, she's always been great. And so, yes, there's a lot, there is a lot of uh, Laura in Lottie. And I mean, this also, this very quiet, calm demeanour and, you know, very understated, really. You know, yeah. they're, they're just so lovely to, to be around and, and relaxing and easy people. Absolutely. And um, understated is not perhaps the words you might use to describe Glamourdale, <laughs> Lottie. Yes. Wonderful black stallion yeah. who she won those medals on. Um, what does it mean to you to have horses of Glamourdale's calibre on the British team. Obviously, he is um, the owned by the Van Alst horses in the Netherlands, um, but with Lottie being British, he is obviously being uh, competed for Britain, which is fabulous. And he is just one of the most exciting horses we've seen for a long time, I think, isn't he? Yeah, he's incredible. I mean, he's got so much power and presence and he has these, you know, particularly in Canter, as we all know, mm. these incredible, you know, movements that scores 10. Um, I, and I think it's easy to forget that, that he's only 10 years old himself. And so there is a lot of improvement still to do. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, comments, oh, he's still this, he's still that, his Piaf could be better, and, and bits and pieces. And that's all true. They can all improve. But if we think that, you know, he's just got there really at this level and he's not even, you know, into his second year of Grand Prix, then this is a really exciting prospect because there are certainly things that can improve. Um, and at that age and the amount of breeding he does, you know, there's a lot for a horse like that. Mm. And, you know, he will, you know, definitely benefit as well from a winter's strengthening. Um, he obviously copes in atmosphere amazingly because he didn't show any uh, tension from the atmosphere out there in Herning. So, I, I mean, I am beyond excited for our team because there we have him as 10 years old we have him as separate nine years old 
uh, and we have all these other new ones coming through and there'll be other people out there preparing horses for the team trying to get on team selection as well a very good group of young horses in the country at the moment with um, Becky Moody, Andrew Gold, uh, just to name a couple that have obviously um, been right up there recently, um, you know, or knocking on the door of Grand Prix or, or if not uh, dipping their toe in and having a go. So some very exciting young horses out there coming through as well. Amazing. And I know that out in Herning this year, you got involved with uh, some slightly new roles, including a stint in the commentators booth. How was that for you? I loved it actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's as a competitor, when I'm at competitions, I don't um, very often, you know, watch many other people ride because you're focusing on your own ride and I'm much more relaxed, not watching everybody. So to actually be at a competition and be in a situation where I wasn't having to worry about my ride and I could really like watch everybody else and enjoy it and support obviously our team, uh, and go up there, sit in the box, and actually go through the test as a commentator, giving my opinion from a rider's point of view, was really good fun. I really enjoyed it. And I'm very, of course, still doing it myself as, as a rider. I'm very aware of how difficult just doing a Grand Prix is for so many people. And there are a lot of people there, you know, having making their debut at that level. And it's just nice to be... Yeah, of course you have to be critical, but that's part of your job when you do that. But also to explain to people from a rider's point of view why it's difficult, why it goes wrong, and what that rider should be expecting at that moment and looking forward to the future. So I hope I got it um, right from a positive point of view. Um, but I did enjoy it, yeah, very much so. Excellent. I think it's so important, isn't it, like you said, to give that rider's perspective on on why you know a particular test, it might not you know, be scoring the 75, 80% of some of the, the really top combinations, but the the sort of the process that that rider and horse will be in the middle of and the journey that they're on. Um, because of course, you know, with the fields of 80, 90 combinations, there's always going to be some people who are earlier on at that level in their career. Um, I wanted to ask actually, if there was anyone um, sort of outside the British team that really caught your eye, perhaps with potential or because you just found them so great to watch, perhaps not one of the, the sort of medalists. Was there anyone who really grabbed your attention? <laughs> like you just said, just to, to go back on that point, mm. we had 90, 93 starters, I think it was, at the World Games. So that is a massive field. And the reason for that is because we have to be more encompassing of all the other nations that are, you know, like out there starting their dressage careers. Um, you know, we had two riders from India there, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, who I watched as well. So when people talk about the standard and, you know, the riding, as always you know from the past and in the present there will always be a group at the top that can do it and you know can do it very well and make it look absolutely beautiful and easy and there will always be a group in the middle towards the other end that are learning it that haven't competed um, before from that point of view you then realize that the standard is going to be very different at the bottoms of the top so mm. that is something to take into consideration when people are being quite critical about some of the rides yeah um, and i love the fact that you know we're letting people come in have a go be part of the sport and growing it so i just wanted to make that point really um from us about the standard you know it's still yeah. very high at one end um, I loved watching um, 
Benjamin Vandal, Jessica's brother. Yes. Uh, a very, he gave a beautiful performance. He was, I think he was fourth in the individual in the end. Just, you know, but he could have easily had a medal. Great riding uh, and, and a nice presentation. There were lots of, um, you know, it was great to see the Spanish team. Yes. With their, with their, you know, with their pre-horses. Because, of course, they are the best promoters of that breed. And to see them back on the team again with these new young horses, that's really satisfying for them. And I felt uh, very proud to watch them because I know, you know, how important that is for them. So that was lovely. Um, there were some very nice riders from, from lots of other countries. Of course, Denmark took the gold. So, I, you know, let's look back at when we took our first gold back in 2011 and how exciting it was for our country and how it changed the sport. And I think that'll do the same for them as well. You know, they all really were ready to be launched uh, onto the big stage. So it will do them and their country. And let's not forget the knock-on effect of the breeders, and up and coming riders, you know how inspirational that of that is for, for for them. So it was it was all round very exciting, and to see Dinia van Lira as well, the Dutch rider, yes, uh, who took an individual medal, very talented rider as well, already produced quite a number of horses for her age uh, to that level. So you know you can see the future of the sport, you know, hanging there, and who will be there in the future. Yeah, it's really, really exciting, and um, great, great to know that you're you're gearing up for for next season as well. Um, you are obviously certainly also a part of the future, as well as having done so much already. Uh, and we all look forward to seeing you out and about next year. I expect. Yeah, well, it looks like I'm I'm gonna have to get cracking. Um, <laughs> it's funny because people say to you, you know, well, are you are you going to ride in Paris? And I'm like, well. Yes, I would love to ride in Paris, but it's not a given. You know, there are lots of people fighting for those three slots. Mm. It's going to be a lot harder uh, by the looks of it with those riders. You know, when you already see, you know, Lottie and, and Charlotte up there very much pushing forward ahead. You've got Gareth's lovely mare from this year, Bria Lincoln. Will she still be there uh, in two years' time? You've got Vogue hopefully coming back. And then you've mm -hmm. got this... Whole, you know, you've got Laura Tomlinson, of course, and Lara with their lovely horses yeah, as well. You know, that. lots of people knocking on the door. It's just not a question of would you like to go to Paris? Yes, I would be <laughs> going. Uh, you know, you've got to be in that top three, getting the scores, and it, I, I can see it's it's looking like a very competitive, uh, challenging spot to get on that team uh, for Paris. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, it is only, uh, well, sort of less than two years away now, um, coming round very quickly. And we're all very much looking forward to seeing all of you top riders battling it out for those spots. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the Horse and Hound podcast today. It's been a real delight to chat to you. And we're very much looking forward to seeing you out and about very soon. Yeah, well, thanks for keeping me awake. <laughs> That's all to the point. We'll see you very soon. Thanks very much. This week's Horse and Hound podcast is supported by NAF 5 Star for the best performance worldwide. Gutsy horses stay clear on NAF 5 Star GastriVet. Target the stomach and care for the glandular and non-glandular regions daily with this palatable, clinically proven formula. 5 Star GastriVet works to support stomach lining, strength and durability. So I'm joined now by two members of our Horse and Hound news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How's it going, Eleanor? 
Oh, all good. Thank you. I think my most exciting thing of the week is that my foal is currently about the size of a chipmunk, officially. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) At 90 days, it is apparently chipmunk size and is moving around a lot. (laughs) I hadn't quite cottoned on. This is a really, really stupid thing to say, but I hadn't quite cottoned on that. Of course, once you've had the first scans, you, you can't see anything until and, and because folds develop so slowly don't they at the start you're just like well i don't know what's going on <laughs> but um yeah apparently it's chipmunk size so that is very exciting lovely i'm not sure i know what size a chipmunk is but i'll go away and google that after this conversation <laughs> fairly small i think <laughs> like a squirrel i think smaller i think about half the size of a squirrel jack russell and apparently oh, oh, no. Russell's a much bigger than squirrels. <laughs> Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, listeners, we're going to move on from this because I'm not sure anything good can come of this conversation. We will all go away and look up how big chipmunks are. Meanwhile, let me bring in Lucy Elder, our senior news writer and chipmunk and Jack Russell expert. (laughs) Hi, how how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I've just had a week off, which is I'm I'm using as my defence for why my brain's gone to mush about sizes of Jack Russell's and chipmunks and squirrels and things but it was a it was a lovely week off I've been all over the place and uh, including having a good walk around the Malton Hunt Club ride which I'm reporting on uh, the weekend after this podcast comes out so yeah lovely week Oh, have they got some big hedges, big ditches? It's yeah, I love walking hunt ride courses because it's a little bit it's proper map reading. Um and uh yeah, lots of terrain, really inviting looking hedges, but a real it's gonna be a real test of cross country riding, so I can't wait to can't wait to watch that. Oh, great. Well, I hope that goes well this weekend. Well, let's talk about what you've both been covering on the uh, Horse and Hound news front this week. Eleanor, I know that you attended the World Horse Welfare Annual Conference. I think it was their 25th annual conference. That was last week. Tell us, what was the main theme there? Yeah, so it's always a really interesting conference and they always have a theme. And this year it was, you know, when does use become abuse of, of horses? And, and they always have a, a range of good speakers on that and, and some really, really interesting and thought provoking discussions. And what did the World Horse Welfare CEO, Roly Hours, what did he say about that topic? Well, he says that is a question that the charity has been reflecting on for almost 100 years, as long as they have been in existence. And and he says never before has there been such a mix of views. And that's not only the public, it's horse people, it's academia and in the charity itself. And he, he thinks that's partly because, you know, now we're in such a digital world. People are so much more aware of animal welfare. The, de- the debate is more visible. Uh, the values of society are changing and, and welfare is a higher priority and also society is more suspicious of what quote traditional use of animals so yeah lots of lots of different views and and evidence going into that question Mm, and it seems like in the panel discussion that presumably followed what Rowley said there was quite a lot of talk about consensus and whether we should be striving towards consensus or not and that sounded interesting when I was reading your piece in the magazine can you give us a bit of a rundown on that yeah, and that again, it was a really, really interesting debate with loads of different uh, views. So that one of the speakers was Royal Veterinary College PhD student Bluebell Brown, and she was saying, well, knowledge, the information that we've got is always changing, isn't it? There's always new studies and, and research being uh, being undertaken. And, and also, so are people's perceptions of use and abuse, which can help us sort of change the way we do things. Um, uh, and she gave us an, an example, whisker trimming, which... 
a lot of people did sort of 30 years ago as standard and now the research has changed and, and that's now becoming less common but um interestingly lee mottershead from the racing post was on the panel and he was saying well should consensus maybe not always be the end goal because by debating different things actually you can you can reach agreement and, and or not agreement but progress can be made towards better welfare which i thought was a really interesting point Mm, and a couple of other speakers, I think, picked up on on some of the points he made. And you can read more about that in Eleanor's magazine report. And you also heard from US event rider Matt Brown at the conference. What were his views? Yeah, he, he was brilliant, actually. Really, really interesting speaker. And, and he, his main message was that we all need to do better. Um, and he, he says every single day when he's riding or teaching, he's asking himself questions. What is force versus pressure? How much pressure is too much? And, and he, he's saying he's always questioning himself, sort of saying, you know, did I help the horse understand what my expectations were and how I was asking him? And if I got frustrated, did I manage to take a step back? Really, really interesting stuff. But what, one of the big things he was talking about is that a lot of people uh, were maybe taught and brought up with methods to train and manage horses that actually aren't acceptable anymore. And that comes back to what we were saying about new science and new research going, well, actually, this is a better way to do things. Mm. And I think he said that riders can feel like they're caught between being competitive and making the right decisions for their horses. And I thought that really maybe got into the crux of the issue for a lot of people. Can you elaborate a little on what he said about that? Yeah, he's, he says he's got some friends who have really helped with his strategy. And, and of course, the, the biggest thing there is is listen to your horse and, and horse first, competition second. And he said, you know, he, he obviously he still makes mistakes as everyone does, but he he just tries to always keep himself honest and ask those those questions. Am I doing right by my horse? And he said a, a really interesting uh, thing, I think, was that all of us need to be willing not just to point fingers at other people, but to look at ourselves as well. Mm. Well, thank you, Eleanor, for, for giving us a bit more info about that uh, that day. Lucy, this is often a time of year when stories come to light about animals being injured in accidents involving fireworks or scares from fireworks. And there's some new action happening around this. What's going on? Yes, like you say, Pippa, this is often something that we're touching on at this time of year. Um, and this piece of news, it's about an open letter that has been sent to the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, uh, which is Grant Shapps. And it's urging the government to review firework legislation. So it's been signed by 11 organisations, big organisations, a mix of charities and other bodies, which include British Veterinary Association and the Blue Cross, um, other animal charities, the Kennel Club, veteran charities and some others in there as well. And really what it does is it highlights how easy it is to buy fireworks as well as the serious animal welfare concerns associated with them and the detrimental impact that they can have. Mm. And what sort of changes does the letter call for? So it's highlighting really that while there's been several government awareness campaigns about fireworks, there's been no legislative commitment to a review of fireworks and the, their impact on people and animal welfare. Um, it references 
some of the new Scottish laws that we see we saw coming in this year and which we reported on back in July, which mean that fireworks can only be supplied to and used by members of the public on certain dates. And it, those also grant local authorities power to set up firework control zones. So it's urging the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy to follow suit on those, on, on what Scotland's done. And I contacted the department and uh, Mr. Shouts for comment, um, which I've not had yet. Uh, but I also spoke to one of the signatories, Becky Thwaites, who's head of public affairs at the Blue Cross. And she told me that easy access to fireworks and poor enforcement of the existing legislation means that animals are continuing to suffer. And she also said that they welcome measures such as, um, as I just mentioned, their restrictions on periods where fireworks can be sold and used for private purposes, but also a reduction in maximum decibel levels of firework for public sale to 97 decibels, powers to impose firework-free zones, um, again, referencing what was happening in Scotland, particularly around specific locations such as animal shelters or hospitals and rehoming centres. So, yeah, timely and interesting, I think. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Lucy, and thank you to Eleanor for joining us today too. Dr Gemma Pearson is Director of Equine Behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified veterinary equine behaviourist who splits her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the strong horse. Now, I'm going to be honest, as a behaviourist, I absolutely hate the term strong. Obviously, horses are strong. We wouldn't be riding them if they were weak or we shouldn't be riding them if they're weak. So what do we mean by a strong horse? What people normally mean is that the horse pulls on the reins and that you need increased rein pressure to control the horse. So from a behaviourist perspective, I would start to break that down. And I would say the horse has a deficit to slowing and stopping from rein pressure. And I would also say that the horse is unable to maintain self-carriage, i.e. when the horse is being ridden, the horse starts to accelerate without being cued from the rider. And maybe we can think about this as a horse that goes cross country. People say, well, he's fine elsewhere, but we go cross country and he becomes really strong. So I would say through classical conditioning, the horse associates the cross country course, the start box, the jumps with galloping. So it triggers that kind of emotional response of excitement of let's start galloping. So the horse does that. And then the rider is unable to control them from the reins. But then that can in itself actually cause some discomfort in the horse's mouth, which can actually mean that some horses try and get faster and faster and faster. And then you need increasingly strong bits. You need different nose bands and tight nose bands to control these horses. So how would we deal with a strong horse then? Oh, I'm, I'm, I want to stop calling them strong. And how would we deal with a horse that has deficits in slowing and stopping and that doesn't maintain self-carriage? Well, to state the obvious, we retrain the horse to slow and stop from rain pressure. And it is important that they understand this from rain pressure and not just from our seat. Once the rain pressure works correctly, then we use our seat so that hopefully we don't need to use the reins, but it's always there as, as a backup and to reinforce the seat if needed. So if I'm backing a young horse, I will actually teach them to step forwards and backwards from rain pressure in hand. And then I'll put the reins over the horse's head and I'll put my hand either side of the horse's wither, exactly where your hands are going to be. 
and I'll put light pressure back on the reins and these horses just step backwards because they've learned that backwards bit pressure means to step back. Now, where I see this often go wrong is riders will put light pressure on the horse's mouth and rather than stepping back, the horse will actually flex their head and neck or they will raise their head and neck. So the horse associates bit pressure with changes in head and neck position, not with movement of the feet. And you might think, why am I talking about stepping a horse back? You know, we're talking about slowing down. But the horse uses the same muscles to step back as it does to slow down, down, i.e. brace, when it is moving forward in walk, trot or canter. So the better your horse's step back from light rein pressure, the better your slow down response will be. So initially with these horses, and it's got to be light, if you put too much pressure on them, they just brace against it. Or as we often see, they raise their head and neck in the air and they hollow through the back. So if the horse really doesn't understand um, rein pressure, you may even have someone in front and they can put a bit of pressure on the horse's chest with a hand or even with a, you know, a light whip tap or something. So we put very light pressure on the horse's mouth. The millisecond that horse starts to step back, we release that pressure. And then the horse will very quickly learn, don't move your head and neck position. The way to make the bit pressure go away is to, to step backwards. And at that point, of course, we release the reins entirely. Eventually, we're just going to go back to a contact level, but initially make it really clear for the horse. So once the horse can step back, I'll then do some walk halt transitions. So I'll ask the horse to walk forwards um, and then just use gentle rein pressure and count the number of steps of the front feet. Because if you use light rein pressure, the horse should be able to halt within two steps. And if you go in one, two, three, four, five, by the time the horse has halted, that tells me that there's a deficit in the stop response. So if you do one, two, then I would put more rein pressure on and make the halt happen. But again, the millisecond the horse halts, that you feel them slow down and stop, release that rein pressure. That's the reward that reinforces that that was the correct behavior. So we do that from walk to halt, then of course do it from trot to walk, from canter to trot. And then the next thing is we've got to be able to change our speed within the pace. So I'll get the horse to go faster and slower. Now, if you think about the amount of squeeze it takes to bring the horse down from trot to walk from the reins, think about using 10% of that or, you know, a fraction of that to get the horse just to take some slower steps. And once we've got the horse that can slow down or stop from rein pressure, then we need to teach them to maintain self-carriage. So this is where we want the horse to maintain that same speed um, until we cue them otherwise. So I may at this point be cantering the horse and I may use light rein pressure to bring them into a slow canter. But then I've got to be able to give and retake the reins without the horse accelerating again. That proves to me that I am not holding that horse slow. And if the horse does accelerate, you just slow them down again and then you try again a little bit later on. You know, and you'll find the horse just learns to maintain that slower rhythm. Once they can do that, I might do it with jumps. So again, we always shape these behaviours. We break them down into easy to achieve steps. So I may take the horse, you know, into a field with jumps in, but not actually jump it. Just the visual stimulus of the jump might encourage that horse to want to accelerate. But if we can train the horse to slow down and stop off of light bit pressure and then maintain a slow canter around the jumps, you know, once they can do that in a couple of sessions, then we might start to work over the jumps. And if you've got a horse that, you know, starts to bolt towards or accelerate rapidly towards a jump, I would say teach them to go slowly towards it. 
if you're a long way out from the jump, um, I would even halt them. You know, if you can feel them starting to rush, I would halt them there. Once you get into about five strides, you've just got to let that, you know, we don't want to teach the horse to refuse. And we also don't want to upset them. It's their job to actually get over the jump. So once they get it within there, um, I wouldn't try and unhalt them. But what I would do is when they land on the other side, I'll quietly bring them out to a halt, release the rain pressure. That's the most important bit. Give them a scratch and let them gently walk away. And if you just keep repeating that, you'll find that these horses start to kind of come in in a decent rhythm. Even if they, you know, you get that nice drawer into a fence, they may accelerate slightly into it, but then they're expecting to halt afterwards. So they then immediately slow themselves down again. And then you might not need to slow down. You might be able to use your leg and go on and jump the next jump. So the final thing I'm going to say here is we really need to get horses back to being ridden in what I call a more normal bits so or snaffles, you know, and with normal calves and nose bands. Obviously, there's lots of different scenarios. You know, there are times when horses may need something different. But people will often use a pelham or a gag because it feels lighter in their hand. But what you've got to remember is that because of the leverage, that is putting an awful lot more pressure on the horse's mouth. So it's not any lighter in the horse's mouth. It just feels lighter to you. And we, you know, we do have studies now which have shown that we do have some damage when we use more severe bits and tighter nosebands inside the horse's mouth that you can't see from the outside. So if we want to maintain our social license in horse sports, we need to start training horses to be slower, to maintain self-carriage, to stop off of light rain pressure um, and to not accelerate without us asking them to. And if we can do that, then we never get into the situation of needing stronger bits and tighter nosebands. And the other side, what I don't want people to think is that I'm saying that, you know, you've got a horse that um, you struggle to control in a gag bit and a very tight grackle noseband. And please don't think I'm saying just put it in a snaffle because safety is the most important aspect. You have to have control, but try and get them lighter. And you'll find most of these horses over time, you can then get back to using more friendly bits and nosebands. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Gemma. Gemma will be back with us next week to talk about horses that buck and rear and our interview will be with 13 times champion jumps trainer Paul Nichols. He'll talk about his flying start to the season, his top horses, life at Ditcheat and looking back at some of the all-time greats such as Corto Star. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, supported by NAF Five Star for the best performance worldwide. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.